Psalm 105, verses 1 through 3. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praises to him, speak of all his wonders, glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Let us stand together and sing now hymn number 50. seated. Let us pray together. Great God in heaven, we thank you again for the hour of praise and of worship. Uh, We acknowledge that uh, the weight of sin and of worldliness is something which weighs us down and which uh, makes it difficult to praise you, O God. It makes it difficult to come into uh, 
into this place, the courts of the Lord, and to give our best. We're mindful of what the Puritans and, uh, and, and their, their sons taught us, and that is to prepare for the Sabbath and for worship. We confess to you we uh, perhaps have not done a good work of that, especially on a holiday weekend, but, uh, and so many traveling now. Uh, but, but, but those of us are, who are here, we're here, Lord, and, and we confess to you in our, in our praise and in our worship, our desire to worship you. However flawed, it is our desire, and we ask you that you would give us uh, a greater ability to do so, that you would wipe away the stain of sin and of the world, that you would enable us to have greater strength with which to deal with our sin and our corruption, and, uh, and the worldliness with which we are contending so constantly. God, one of the great things that we desire in the church, and we find it so difficult, especially today, but I suppose in every age, every church has had to lament this, and that's the, the trouble of keeping the church out of the, uh, the world out of the church. Part of the problem is we bring so much of the, of the world in, into the church in our own hearts and in our own thinking. The greatest travesty is when the world is what becomes the dominant or even the subtle tone of the pulpit ministry. God, we, we are seeking to break free from the world as much as we can in this place and its hold on us. We are seeking to rise above it in a spiritual act of service and consecration and worship. We see worship as dealing with holy things and spiritual things and spiritual realities. And we pray that you might attend to them, the preaching, the sacraments, the praying, the singing, and in, in, uh, you might attend to them with your own power and your own grace and that you, Lord Jesus, as our great high priest, would minister to us and consecrate them to us and to you and even consecrate our very persons as we are called now a holy priesthood and a royal nation. Amazing to think, but so we are by your own declaration and your own your own action. Uh, Father, looking at worship like this, we recognize that it is a solemn act. It is a solemn act of thanksgiving, as indeed you, you teach us to rejoice on the Sabbath day, remembering your great acts of redemption, uh, remembering those things more than the other things we find in the world. Uh, but at the same time, oh God, we also have much to thank you for in the world. We are conscious, for instance, of uh, this wonderful and rich heritage we have in America, uh, given to us by the Pilgrim Fathers, uh, and, and, and seeing this as a unique work of your own providence, uh, as, as uh, I can't remember the man's name now, but as one of the men wrote, uh, it, 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 it is the great Protestant experiment here in America. It was never really able to get going in Europe because the state was always interfering, and so the state was always persecuting the Protestant churches. Uh, but Lord, here the Protestant church had the opportunity to flourish from its very inception. And as we gather together on this Sabbath day in a Protestant church, we remember what you did so many centuries ago here in the founding of this nation. And Lord, we are not inclined to forget it. A religious freedom is our heritage. It is what we believe as Protestants. It is what we wish uh, to uphold and to maintain. And it is something that only you can grant. We do not see it as the work of men. It is the work and the gift and the grant of God. And you have granted it to us in our nation. And we pray that you might preserve it. Lord, we don't know how. Men have had to fight for it. They've had to shed their blood. At the very least, they had to believe it. Oh, that we would believe it, oh Lord. And oh, that we would hold fast to it uh, in thanksgiving to you. Uh, not just on Thursday, but especially on Sunday this week. God, 
Continue to grant it to your church. Continue to give us a sense of the great things that you have done, not only in redemption, but even in your providence. And give us a sense, that is to say, of history, O Lord, because you didn't stop acting when you raised Jesus from the dead. You've been acting ever since. You've been building your church. You've been preserving her and caring for her and setting her apart from the world. And we continue to seek those things. To that end, O Lord, we pray not only for our own identity as a pilgrim people, but we pray for the civil magistrate. Uh, it, it would seem in many places more and more that uh, the civil magistrate is encroaching upon the church and losing a sense of what America is about in its founding. Again, the great Protestant experiment. Uh, Lord, we ask you that you would cause righteousness uh, to to increase among the civil magistrate. We, we pray that you would give them a sense, each of them, at every level, a sense that they are ministers of God and that they are appointed only uh, by your command and they are invested with power only by you. They are invested with this as ministers or as servants to the people. Lord, we ask you for for them. We pray for them. We ask you that you would minister to us through them, not in spite of them. Lord, we want to see the civil magistrate as much as the church thriving in its own way and prospering and, and performing your will. We are not uh, so vain as to think that the church is the only place where your will is being done or that your providence is any interest. We especially pray, as Paul teaches us, to pray for those in authority so that we might live a quiet and peaceable life, free from the interference of the state. We don't want to be like Moses, having to beg the king, please let us go out and worship God. We want to do so uh, day by day and week by week in this place, uh, simply in obedience to God. And so, Lord, uh, we ask you for the both spheres, for the church and for the state, for your will to be done in both, and increasingly so. Uh, but then remembering again our own church and thinking of the, the, the particular trials and challenges which we face in the given moment, we recognize that whatever it is that divides men from men, even family members from one another, that uh, and, and, and certainly Satan is busy today. There is so much deceit. There is so much division. Uh, the world is at odds in a way almost unparalleled in our own lifetimes. We understand what Paul meant when he said men are hateful, hating one another and Titus. Surely we see that today as men and women take various positions on various sides of the issues. We pray that there might be a sweet and blessed unity in this church, even as we uh, we meet in two separate services. We pray that you would pave a way in your own providence for us to come together uh, again very soon. And, and we ask you that uh, throughout it all, our hearts would go out to our brother, even if we should differ on this issue or that. Uh, and that there would be a pervasive unity uh, and a blessed, sweet unity, which we enjoy together. Again, just like religious liberty, Lord, we recognize only you can grant it. And we pray that you would and that you would command your blessing where it exists, just as you express in Psalm 133. But then, oh, Lord, as we close our prayer, we remember those words you taught us to say. Now, saying together, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, if you would turn with me now, if you wish, otherwise just uh, go ahead and listen 
to uh, Exodus 24. Exodus 24 is the passage which, not surprisingly, uh, forms the basis of our present passage. Not surprisingly, that is in the sense that the Old Testament almost always forms the basis of what is being said in the book of Hebrews. And so, as you study the book of Hebrews, you, you might want to know what he's quoting. And he's quoting this, and he's referencing this, the act of consecration, which occurred through the sprinkling of blood, the blood of the covenant, of the tabernacle, of the, of the, uh, the ornaments of the tabernacle, and of the people themselves. And so look at this here, and then, as we'll see in the sermon, learn to, to look at the work of Christ along the same lines. Exodus 24, verses 1 through 11. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of, of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. Moses alone, however, shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. When Moses came up and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and the other half of the blood. Listen to this. He sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the book of the, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders. And they saw that the God of Israel, uh, they saw the God of Israel and under his feet. There appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. And they saw God and they ate and drank. And let us uh, stand in response to God's word and sing the doxology. Turn with me to the back of your hymnal, page 635, selection 37, Psalm 74. And we'll read responsibly, uh, or, or if you would read along with me in the bold. I'll read the unbolded Psalm 74. O God, why hast thou cast us off forever? Why doth thine anger smoke against the sheep of thy pasture? Remember thy congregation, which thou hast purchased of old, the rod of thine inheritance, which thou hast redeemed, 
this Mount Zion, wherein thou hast dwelt. Lift up thy feet unto uh, the perpetual desolations, even all that thy enemy hath done wickedly in the sanctuary. Thine enemies roar in the midst of thy congregations. They set up their ensigns for signs. A man was famous according as he lifted up axes upon the thick trees. But now they break down the carved work thereof at once with axes and hammers. They have cast fire into the sanctuary. They have defiled by casting down the dwelling place of thy name to the ground. They said in their hearts, let us destroy them. They have burned up all the assemblies of God in the land. We see not our signs. There is no more any prophet, neither is there among us any that knoweth how long. O God, how long shall the adversary approach? Shall the enemy blaspheme thy name forever? Why withdrawest thou thy hand? Even thy right hand, pluck it out of thy bosom. For God is my king of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. Thou didst divide the sea by thy strength. Thou breakest the heads of the sea monsters in the waters. Thou breakest the heads of the Leviathan in pieces and gavest him to be meat to the people inhabiting the wilderness. Thou didst cleave the fountain and the flood. Thou driest up mighty rivers. The day is thine. The night also is thine. Thou hast prepared the light and the sun. Thou hast set all the borders of the earth. Thou hast made summer and winter. Remember this, that the enemy hath reproached, O Lord, and that the foolish people have blasphemed thy name. O deliver not the soul of the turtle dove unto the multitude of the wicked. Forget not the congregation of thy poor forever. Have respect unto the covenant for the dark places of the earth are full of the habitations of cruelty. O let not the oppressed return to shame. Let the poor and needy praise thy name. Arise, O God, plead thine own cause. How the foolish man remembers. Uh, Forget not the voice of thine enemies, the tumult of those that rise up against thee increaseth continually. Let us now sing praise to God uh, by standing together and singing. It's a hymn of preparation and you have an insert there. It's front and back and can it be.
please be seated. Now, if you would turn with me, please, to Roman, uh, Hebrews chapter 9. As I indicated last time, there, there are three sermons here. Uh, the blood, first sermon, the, the covenant, this sermon, the tabernacle, the third sermon, verses 11 through 18. Uh, although uh, I, I should tell you that since this is a subject which is uh, raising so many questions, I've been wanting to preach uh, and been studying and now feel prepared to preach uh, next week a sermon on Romans 13. Uh, Christians have been discussing this quite a bit this year, uh, and I was hoping that I might uh, say a few things about that passage myself and perhaps uh, help the church in some of the discussions we've been having and that we will have in the weeks and the months to come. Uh, And following that, Lord willing, we will conclude the chapter. So Hebrews chapter chapter 9, verse 15 for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, since, uh, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the internal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood, for when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book, of, the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, All things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Let us pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you for this passage. Uh, Once again, we consider the great and the rich privileges which we have as members of the new covenant. We, we, We thank you that. We not only participate in these things, but the, the wonderful mysteries are unfolded to us in Scripture, and we pray that they might be further unfolded through the exposition in the preaching. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I indicated last time, chapter 9, verses 11 through 28 really comprises one major section, uh, but it is also way too much text to take in one sermon. Uh, and so... Uh, we are taking it in three, uh, which it really isn't so difficult because there are, in fact, three major ideas. As I just reminded you, there is the blood of Christ, there is the covenant, and there is the tabernacle. Last time we considered the blood, why the blood was necessary, what the blood can do, what the blood does, perhaps would be a better way to put it. This time we consider the covenant, but also here, again, seeing the great relevance which the blood has in establishing that covenant. And then finally, we will look at the tabernacle, verses 23 through 28, but also verses 11 and 12. Now, what we find here is something that we often find, uh, and that is orderly thought. Uh, In this newer section, looking at verses 11 through 14 last time, beginning a new subsection in verse 15, he states the key thought first, and then he expounds it. So verse 15 is the key statement, and then everything that follows, verses 16 through 22, helps us to understand what he's saying in that statement. The statement is this, um, 
For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since the death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. There is the thesis or the proposition, you might say. But you see, it begins by pointing to what was just said in the prior section, verses 11 through 14. For this reason, that is to say, for the reasons stated there about the blood, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. The reason he is this is because of what his shed blood accomplished. It accomplished, as we saw last time, what the blood of animals shed under uh, the old covenant never could. Namely, uh, just very briefly, three things. He opened up access into the true holy place. He secured an eternal redemption. And he, he is able to cleanse the conscience defiled by dead works. And because Christ did this when he shed his blood, his shed blood becomes the basis, we read here, and we've seen already, of a new covenant, which is the present argument in verses 15 through 22. But before we go on to consider what is being said in those verses, I want to comment on a phrase I ignored last time, which we find in verse 14, uh, and which has relevance to what we are considering today. That Christ, in shedding his blood for us, uh, if you look at verse 14, you'll notice uh, he offered himself without blemish to God. Verse 14. The reason this is important is because of what we are considering presently, namely the idea of the covenant. And what is being described in that phrase, offering himself without blemish to God, is a description of the covenant. It is a description, in other words, of his priestly office and priestly action in terms of a covenantal transaction which occurs between the Son and the Father on the cross. That what Christ does on the cross has reference to the Father. The Father in his justice demands that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Verse 22. And implied in this is the thought that the blood must also be without blemish, which is why forgiveness could never be found in the sacrifices and the shedding of blood under the old covenant. Because there was always blemish, there was always weakness. And so this could never be found until Christ shed his blood. No true forgiveness. But for him to shed his blood and offer that blood to God fulfills the condition set by God for bringing in forgiveness. This is what Hugh Martin says about it. He says the fundamental notion and essence of atonement as embodied in the priestly work of Christ is the offering of himself unto God, a sacrifice and reconciliation for the sins of the people. It is his substitutionary oblation of himself bearing the curse and bringing in righteousness, thereby satisfying divine justice and reconciling us unto God. All of his priestly action and his greatest priestly work, which is the cross, his reference to God, his attributes, his justice, his wrath, his mercy, all in such a way that uh, what he brings to pass on the cross is not an act of persuasion, which we have seen whereby he persuades the Father to be merciful, merciful but, but rather he brings that mercy to pass and to a perfect expression. What he accomplishes on the cross, offering himself to the Father, is nothing less and nothing else than the will of the Father. And so Martin goes on to say, of this offering to the Father, that was the full, complete will of God which Jesus came to do. 
to offer himself and by offering himself to sanctify, consecrate and render acceptable unto God those whom the father had given him. And it is that thought which brings us uh, into the realm of what we are considering in verses 15 through 22. Having rightly understood what it was Christ accomplished on the cross in shedding his blood and offering that blood to the father. That we rightly see him as the mediator of a new covenant. Verse 15. In other words, Jesus is able to bring in the blessings envisioned by Jeremiah chapter 31 as stated in Hebrews chapter 8 verse 12. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. There is the cardinal and chief blessing of the new covenant, a total forgiveness that could never be overturned. Which satisfies both the justice of the father and the sense of guilt which we have in our own consciences. Jesus brings this in. And he does so. He brings in the blessings of the new covenant. He brings in the new covenant itself by his death. Since a death has taken place, he says, he, he, for this reason he's a mediator of a new covenant. So that since a death has taken place. And so what we are considering uh, today is the relationship of the death of Christ to the covenant of forgiveness or the new covenant. And I want to consider this uh, in uh, or under two headings or two questions. The first question is this. What does Christ accomplish by his death? Since a death has taken place, he then tells us what follows. And there's two things which we notice in verse 15. The first is uh, incredibly fascinating. It's a crucial consideration. He says, uh, since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. Now, one of you, uh, I won't say who, but in fact, many of you have asked me this question. What about them? What about those under the old covenant? Uh, Someone just asked me that last week. We have seen time and again that the blood of bulls and goats shed under the old covenant did not succeed in bringing in forgiveness, nor did they succeed in giving the sinner any sense that he was cleansed inwardly from the defilement of sin. He had no peace that is with God. He had no sense that God and he were reconciled. And if he could not find reconciliation, peace and forgiveness under the old covenant and the sacrifices that were offered there, Where then could he find these things? In other words, the question is, did they simply perish? Or as Calvin says, did Jeremiah in saying these things would only come under the new covenant, thereby cut off everyone who preceded the new new covenant? Did he rob David and Abraham uh, and all the saints of the old covenant of the blessing of forgiveness? Is that what Jeremiah did? Is that what Christ did? The answer is not at all. The answer is that the death of Christ is their redemption too, just as it is ours. The death of Christ is what makes forgiveness possible and certain to the saint under the old covenant, just as much as it is to the saint under the new covenant. The point is, if the blood which was shed under that covenant did not succeed in blotting away their sins, how then did they find it? As, for instance, David declares in Psalm 32, 
How blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, against whom the Lord remembers his sin no more, or, or does not count his iniquity, I think he says. David there was expressing his own sense of the blessing of forgiveness. Not only that he had found it, but even further that he had a sense of assurance that, uh, that God and I are reconciled. It's the kind of prayer, Psalm 32, that we are able to pray ourselves under the new covenant. It is something which uh, David express, or excuse me, Paul expresses in Romans chapter 4 in describing the blessings of justification, which he says David found under the old covenant. Or we know that Father Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Genesis chapter 15 verse 6. How did he find that blessing? If not by the sacrifices which were shed and made under the old covenant. The answer is that David and Abraham and all the rest, everyone who was saved under that covenant, found it in the same way as we. Namely, through the death of Christ. As pictured, as envisioned, and as anticipated by the blood sacrifices of the old covenant. They looked forward by faith to a sacrifice that would bring in the blessings of the new covenant. Just as uh, Jesus says, Abraham looked forward to my day and was glad. They were able to comprehend by faith uh, that the Messiah was coming and that he would be their savior, just as ours. And so the answer to the question is that by his death, Christ not only atones for our sins, but theirs, as he says, since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. His death is more than adequate and more than sufficient to deal with their sins just as much as ours. But then he says something else. A second answer to the question, what does the death of Christ accomplish? Look at what he says next in verse 15. So that those who have been called may receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. Which is to say by his death he guarantees the blessings of the new covenant or he brings them in. Stated not merely as redemption from transgressions, which we saw under the first point, but rather that those who were called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Since a death has taken place, namely the death of Christ, that is something that is certain to come to pass. But how are we to envision this blessing when he speaks of those who are called receiving the eternal inheritance? And once again... The writer to the Hebrews is calling to mind something that occurred in the, under the Old Covenant in, 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 uh, in uh, the Old Testament. In particular, what was found uh, when the Lord established the covenant of grace with Abraham. The key word here is not inheritance, although that is important. It is the word eternal. The Lord had promised something that would be eternal. It would never fade away. It would never perish. It would never pass. That is what he promised to those who are called. And so the language here of an eternal inheritance calls to mind what the Lord promised to Abraham. As for instance, uh, though you find this language repeatedly in the book of Genesis, Genesis 12, Genesis 13, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, the language of an eternal blessing uh, verse. Let's see. Verse. Chapter 13, verse 15, for all the land the Lord is promising to him, which you see, I will give it to you and your descendants forever. The Lord is speaking, and this is something which is perplexing uh, at first and peculiar, 
until by faith the patriarchs and we with them comprehended what it was the Lord was promising. The land, which was to be a temporal blessing, obviously was described in terms of an eternal inheritance. What was the Lord describing to Abraham? And what is it uh, then we will see that Christ achieves by his death? He was promising something better than land. He was pointing typically or uh, as a sign through the land to something far better, which these pilgrim fathers were able to comprehend by faith an eternal inheritance, namely heaven itself, which, as I say, the land was merely a sign or a marker which pointed on to the heavenly Jerusalem. This is exactly what the writer to the Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 in describing the life of faith, which was the life of the of the. Uh, of the patriarchs that even though they dwelt in the land they comprehended that God was promising to them something better something permanent something eternal even in the language that he used an eternal inheritance by faith Abraham when he was called this is verse 8 obeyed going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance there you see the word and he went out not knowing where he was going by faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise As in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Then in verses 13 through 16, and the same note uh, goes on actually through the rest of the epistle, all the way through chapter 13. But here, chapter 11, verse 13, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Well, there it is. There is the blessing which God promised to Abraham and which he promises to us when he speaks of an eternal inheritance. Namely, the heavenly Jerusalem. But that isn't actually the point here. The point here is not what was promised. We need to see that as every bit as much as Abraham did. What was promised was heaven. The point here is rather, coming back to what is said in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 15, how what was promised would be granted to those who are called. Namely, the recipients of the promise. How would they come to inherit the heavenly Jerusalem? And the answer is plainly by the death of Christ. The death of Christ is what brings our inheritance into our possession. The death of Christ is, in other words, which that which not only makes heaven certain to us, but which even opens heaven to us now. Which has been the point of so much of what has been said throughout this epistle. That Christ, by his death, has gone before us into heaven and now has opened up the way for us to enter there. Even now. Remember what was said, for instance, in chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, which we considered last time. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. By his death, he entered the holy place and opened it up to us. 
Or listen to what was said in chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. This hope we have is an anchor of the whole, uh, of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, that is to say, into heaven, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Christ has gone before us by his death into heaven as a forerunner, and by his death, he has granted us access as well, by which we are able now to use the language of chapter four to draw near to the throne of grace. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession, verse 14. And then verse 16, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so in answer to the question, what does Christ's death accomplish for us? The answer is forgiveness for those transgressions committed under the old covenant. And he brings, uh, he brings to us, secondly, into possession of the promised eternal inheritance. But then I want to ask another question. And that is, how does he do so by his death? Or how does his death do so? And here uh, the writer makes two arguments. Thus far we've only looked at verse 15, which as I said is the main verse. But he begins to expound how it is that the death brings us into these blessings. Uh, under two headings. First, in verses 16 and 17, he tells us that he does so by his death. Uh, well, he, draw, he draws his argument uh, that... Uh, he draws his argument from common experience, verses 16 and 17. Let me read those two verses. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of one who has made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, and it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Now, let me make a slight adjustment to that translation. The argument here makes better sense when you take the word covenant in its secondary sense, namely that of a testament, which you will find in the older the older translation, such as the King James. Uh, or perhaps in uh, one of the newer ones, uh, such as the ESV, you'll find the word will, but not the word covenant, which, as I say, is a secondary meaning of the word here used in the Greek. So let me read it again like that. Where a testament is, or will, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a testament is valid only when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Well, again, we have to see the blessings of the new covenant as our inheritance, as uh, scripture teaches us to do, not only here, but also as uh, the Lord speaks to Abraham in promising the blessings of the covenant, or as the Apostle Paul does repeatedly, that we're heirs according to promise and so forth. Time and again, uh, the blessings of salvation are described as our inheritance, which we uh, or which are promised to us as adopted sons. Seeing salvation like that, we recognize that we cannot come into our inheritance as adopted sons until the one who made that promise dies. Now, that is something which is plainly true uh, when speaking of or dealing with any of the testaments or wills which are made among men. The heir does not come into the inheritance until the one who made the will dies but just as soon as he dies so the heir comes into possession of those things 
And uh, all that the writer here is saying by way of common experience is that the principle by which the Lord operates in the new covenant is no different than the principle which you are aware of and which you plainly recognize in uh, the dealing of men with men. So God deals with us. The heir does not come into the, the inheritance until a death comes to pass. Plain and simple. Uh, but that is not the great argument being made here. There is something special. That is common. But there's something special uh, that the writer here indicates, which the Lord does, uh, which really doesn't have a parallel. He tells us that it is blood which inaugurates the covenant, speaking not of God's common dealings with men or man's common dealing, uh, dealings with man, but God's special dealings with sinner. In other words, the idea of the covenant. Verses 18 through 22. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment has been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. So again, the writer here is bringing us out of the realm of common experience and into the realm of God's special dealings with man, which we call the covenant. And we discover about God that he brings every covenant into operation through the shedding of blood. As, for instance, God did with Abraham when he established the covenant of grace. If you remember in in Genesis chapter 15, Not only did Abraham believe the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness, but Abraham said two verses later in verse uh, in verse eight, Lord, how may I know here was a believer who was lacking assurance, but he came to possess the assurance when the Lord established the covenant by uh, by the sacrifice of the animals and passing through the animals. He established the covenant with Abraham through the shedding of blood. Again, with Moses in the Old Covenant, that covenant we see was was not devoid of this principle either. That everything must be consecrated with blood. The tabernacle, the utensils, the people, they all must be sprinkled with the blood. Otherwise, they are unclean and they are unfit to dwell and to deal with God. Which he quotes for us in, in verses 19 through 21, and which we just read. But we also find this language... The blood of the covenant. And what our Lord says with regard to the Lord's Supper in Matthew chapter 26 verses uh, verses 27 and 28, which I keep reading. It's amazing to see the connection uh, as we've come uh, to to practice weekly communion uh, in, in the midst of preaching Hebrews, the connection of the priesthood of Christ with the Lord's Supper. Listen to the language here and see it in connection with what is being said in Hebrews and what was said in Exodus 24. Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The shedding of blood. This is something, as we've seen, that is an irrevocable principle in God's economy. Verse 22, without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And more broadly, we see here that no covenant can come to pass without the shedding of blood. It is blood that brings the covenant into operation. 
And since the new covenant is a covenant of forgiveness, nothing less than the blood of Christ would do. And here let me share two quotes from John Calvin, which I found very helpful. The first, uh, speaking of uh, what I just referred to in Genesis 15, but also what the writer of the Hebrews speaks of in uh, chapter 6, uh, and that is the way by which the word of promise is made certain to us. God not only speaks his word, but he confirms his word. John Calvin says this. This passage reminds us that the promises of God are then only profitable to us when they are confirmed by the blood of Christ. For we not only hear God speaking, but also see Christ offering himself as a pledge for those things which are spoken. I love that way of putting it. We not only hear God speaking, but also see Christ offering If you remember, in the first part of the book of Hebrews, uh, the central assertion is that God had spoken in various ways. But now he's spoken climactically and finally in his son. And the question that he's asking throughout, warning about apostasy, is, have you listened to what he said? When you hear the Lord speaking, don't fall away in unbelief, hardening your hearts, as the wilderness community did. The Lord is speaking. That's the first Part of the argument in the book and or the exhortation. But as we come later on to chapters uh, seven through ten, we also see that the Lord is doing more than speaking. He's also acting. He's also offering. We not only hear God speaking, but we see Christ offering just as Abraham did in Genesis 15. In a lesser way, he heard the word of the Lord. He believed it, but he also saw him acting and he came to an assurance of faith. And so when I look for certainty regarding God's word of promise, that he will pardon my iniquities and remember them no more, as he promised in Jeremiah 31. I not only hear him speaking, but I see Christ offering, assuring that that promise must be so. I know when I look upon Christ on the cross that God will surely forgive my sins and he will surely remember them no more. To see Christ's offering on the cross is what makes God's word spoken certainty or certain to me. Just as the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, when speaking of the assurance of forgiveness, if God uh, delivered, did not spare his own son, how will he not freely with him give us all things? What further proof do I need than this? The blood of the covenant is what seals what is promised to me. It is what makes it certain. But let me read another quote from Calvin, which will bring us to the final thought of the sermon here, dealing with the sprinkling of the blood. This is something uh, we've been dealing with the blood, but we have we have yet to consider the idea of sprinkling. This is what Calvin says. He afterward adds that the tabernacle and all the vessels and also the very book of the law were sprinkled. By which right the people were then taught that God could not be sought or looked to for salvation, nor rightly worshipped except faith in every case looked to an intervening blood. For the majesty of God is justly to be dreaded by us, and the way to his presence is nothing to us but a dangerous labyrinth until we know that he is pacified towards us through the blood of Christ, and that this blood affords to us a free access. All kinds of worship are then faulty and impure until Christ cleanses them by the sprinkling of his blood. There's the point that we need to see. That it isn't enough. It almost feels blasphemous to say, but I'm going to say it because it's true. It isn't enough for Christ to shed his blood for me. 
Unless I come into contact with that blood, I cannot be saved. He must not only shed, but sprinkle his blood. And only then am I clean. Only then am I able to come into the presence of of God. And so, let me close with some thoughts on the sprinkled blood. We have seen thus far what the blood of Christ accomplishes when it is shed. It is a powerful saving blood. But we have yet to consider the priestly act or the priestly service of sprinkling as we find in the Old Covenant. Again, the priest or Moses here acting as the priest was to sprinkle the tabernacle and the ornaments of the tabernacle and the people themselves. And only then were they fit to commune with God in the tabernacle. And so seeing the priestly action like this, not merely shedding, but sprinkling the blood, we must conceive of Christ performing the same act and the same function with his own blood. Again, it was not enough for him to shed his blood. He must sprinkle it as well. Otherwise, we remain unclean. So we must view the sprinkling of blood as the action of the priest. And seeing Christ as our great high priest, we see this as his action as well. Seeing ourselves as vessels to be made clean. And until we come in contact with the blood, we are unclean. This act is an act of consecration. It is what he does for me. I do not sprinkle myself. And we've already seen what his blood can do. And so we know that if he should shed his blood for me and then to sprinkle me with that blood. I may know with certainty that I am made clean and I am now fit to dwell in the sanctuary of the Lord, which is to say heaven itself. Not only that, but we also see, as uh, I will tell you, Owen helped me to see and I want to share a little Owen with you in a moment. That his sprinkled blood is what cleanses us from all defilement inwardly. It is by sprinkling me with his blood that my guilty conscience is made clean. As he said in verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. It is by his blood shed and sprinkled. That I find the covenant is now ratified to me. I find forgiveness and assurance to draw near to God. But not until then. Not until I am made to come in contact with the blood. But then you ask this question, which is a question I asked. And that is, how am I made to partake of his blood? Seeing that uh, the saints under the old covenant were physically sprinkled with the blood. But that isn't true of us, is it? How does the sprinkling of his blood occur? Whereby his shed blood makes me clean. And the answer is incredibly simple. The answer is in my conversion. It is when I am found to be in Christ. When I am saved. When I am born again. Particularly pictured uh, in baptism actually. Romans chapter 6. When Paul says in Romans chapter 6 verse 3. That by, by baptism we are baptized. Not simply into Christ. But into his death. That is, when we are converted and saved, as pictured in baptism, we are, we are made to partake or to participate in the death of Christ. And so it is there, at our conversions, that Christ sprinkles us with his blood. 
For in conversion, to borrow the language of other passages in Scripture, we are said to be washed and purged and cleansed with his blood. 1 John 1, 7, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. What is being described in those passages is a spiritual transaction. Obviously, we recognize there is no physical contact with the blood, but it is no less real, no less than we are, uh, than, uh, we are made to deal with the power of his blood at the Lord's Supper. It is a spiritual transaction whereby we come in contact with the blood and we are, as I say, made aware of its power to save, its power to cleanse, its power to forgive. And so we must also learn, as the Lord's uh, Lord's Supper teaches us, the ongoing need for this. And this is where Owen comes in. Not merely the need to deal with his blood at conversion, but the need to deal with his blood always. To always see the relevance of the sprinkling. As uh, John Owen says, to act faith on the death of Christ. There is always need for that. This is what he says in the mortification of sin. Let faith look on Christ in the gospel as he is set forth dying and crucified for us. Let look on him under the weight of our sins, praying, bleeding, dying. Bring him on, uh, bring him in that condition into your heart by faith. Apply his blood so shed to your corruptions. That's the line. Apply his blood so shed to your corruptions. And he concludes, do this daily. What he's saying is this, as I'm saying, is deal daily with the blood. See the ongoing relevance of his blood for your souls. Stop seeking to deal with God in a guilty conscience on the basis of works which defile. Your good works will never give you peace with God, nor will they succeed in making you progress in holiness. They will only defile you more and more. The only way to be clean, beloved, in the presence of God, and to know that you are clean, is to be sprinkled with his blood. And as Owen reminds us, this must be a daily transaction, or at least it must be something daily that I make myself aware of. This is the way, Owen says, it is the only way to make progress in the Christian life, to mortify sin, to to set Christ crucified before your soul by faith daily. It is, as he says, to apply his shed blood to your souls, to your corruptions, to your guilty consciences. And then you will find that you are clean and that you are at peace with God and that your service and your place is acceptable to God in the tabernacle, which is to say the heavenly sanctuary. And so we must learn to deal with our own souls, to deal with them that is as God does and as Christ does as our great high priest, not as corrupt and sinful, but as that which is made clean because sprinkled with the blood of Christ. And what a. What a window that opens up uh, into a life of assurance and peace and progress and holiness. Uh, so much for now. Let us, uh, let us now come to the table of the Lord's Supper. I have very little to add to what I just said.
But it really is amazing to think of the blood of Christ sprinkled on the believer. Uh, And that blood cleansing our conscience, that blood making us clean, that blood making us acceptable in the presence of God and fit now to serve and to worship him and even giving us a sense of peace and assurance. Uh, and, and, and then to see that as, uh, as a constant need of the believer. I am always seeking to be at peace with God because my sin makes me aware that something is wrong. And so I'm always aware of my need for his blood. And I need, I need that transaction to occur not only uh, with God but also with myself. I need Christ to make me aware of his blessings and to bring me in contact with his blood. And, uh, and here is the blessing before you, beloved. Listen to what Christ says, again from Matthew chapter 26. It's remarkable to think of the Lord's Supper in light of the priesthood of Christ. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. This is the blood of the covenant, he says, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I might even say there is a sense of cleansing even in that language. Not only is it shed, but as it's shed, it, it drops upon uh, the souls of believers. It is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And we are made now to uh, partake of that blood As a spiritual transaction, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, as we drink from the cup and we eat uh, as we eat the bread. It's a wonderful blessing and the possibilities uh, are almost endless if if we have faith. It's amazing to think how much, well, as I closed, uh, (laughs) the, the possibilities, the window that is open now to the Christian. It casts the whole Christian life in a different light. and We begin to see dealing with God on a daily basis is something uh, that is really possible, that I might be reconciled by his blood and that I might grow in grace. I might subdue my corruptions uh, and on and on and on we go until I finally get to heaven. Constantly, as we seek to deal with God, we must learn to seek to deal with him solely on the basis of his blood. Here is a forceful reminder, but it's also a warning. The warning is this. If you are seeking to deal with God in any other way, then the table is not for you. But if you wish to be clean, if you wish to be clean, then uh, here is uh, here is medicine for guilty, sin sick souls. And let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, the blessing of the Lord's Supper. We thank you most of all for the blood of Christ shed and sprinkled. Uh, thank you for revealing that to us in your word. I don't know that I've ever really thought of that as deeply as I did this week. It's a wonderful thing for you to show us that. We are made to come into contact with that blood. It isn't something far away and distant. Uh, And by that blood, we are truly made clean. Uh, Lord, this is what we need to know. We need to be assured of it. Uh, We need to not only speak of the blessing, but to know the blessing of the Lord not counting our transgressions against us. And so, Father, we pray that we might more and more as we come to the table and even now come uh, to, to possess this blessed assurance. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, beginning with the bread, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, blessed it, broke it and gave it to his disciples as I ministering in his name, give this bread to you.
Our Lord Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, our Savior also took the cup and having given thanks as has been done in his name, he gave it to his disciples as I ministering in his name, give this cup to you. And as a reminder, the outer ring is wine, the inner is grape juice. Our Lord Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink of it, all of you. And now as we close out our worship, let us stand together and sing uh, Isaac Watts' great hymn, number 186.
receive now the Lord's blessing, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.